I've told you before, I get excited about new sermon series. I get excited about ideas that God lays on my heart um, and kind of come together in the planning and the preparation and then the opportunity to share them with you. So we're starting a new series uh, today. It'll be a five-week series. It's titled Made to Thrive. And uh, we're going to look at five different areas of life um, and how we thrive in those areas, thriving spiritually, thriving psychologically or emotionally, thriving socially or or relationally, how we thrive physically and how we thrive financially. And and we are holistic people and all of these things uh, relate to each other. So um, this series very much builds upon itself. Uh, We'll start with thriving spiritually today and uh, move through that. If you miss it, I know it's summertime. I know you got vacations and you got people coming and going and all that, but no, we have a podcast. We update that weekly. Um, If you need help finding that on our website or something, uh, Ask the question, raise the hand, we'll help you find that so that you don't miss uh, one of these. And the big idea in this series overall is that we were made to thrive, not just survive. We're, we weren't, God didn't set this whole thing in motion for us to just exist and barely get by for 80 or 90 years. We were intended to thrive. And if you read the creation and how everything was good prior to the fall, that was the intent. And the intent was that we would thrive and that we would thrive in our relationship with God and with each other and that we would thrive physically. And yes, we live in a broken world, a world that has been broken by the fall. And things are not working the way they were intended to work. And creation is groaning, Paul says in the book of Romans, waiting for Christ's return. But we know, and Scripture tells us clearly, that Jesus was that hinge of history and that God is in the process of making all things new and that there is a glorious culmination to that that we await. And so in the meantime, in the meantime, Scripture teaches us how to thrive spiritually and emotionally and relationally and physically and financially. And if we will just choose to listen to Scripture and incorporate these principles into our life, respond in faith, even when the world says, no, 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 you got to do it this way and this way and this way, when Scripture says, do it this way, and we choose to do that, we find that even in the lowest valley, we can say, yes, I will praise His name. Yes, He is good. Even in the midst of challenges, even in the midst of difficulties, His way is the best way. And you know somebody Every single one of you knows somebody who just seems to thrive no matter what life throws at them. They seem to thrive no matter what happens to them, whatever circumstances they find themselves in. They always have a good attitude. They always take things in stride. And I think the goal for Christianity, the goal, the vision for Christ and his followers is that we would all be those people that thrive no matter what life throws at us because we know who we're following and we know where he is taking us. And so one of the big ideas here is this idea, and you see it on the, on the logo for the series, that there are roots going down and there's fruit coming out and there are little hearts and it's love. And that's really neat. I thought that was really cool when I saw it. Uh, but the idea is that as we deepen our roots into God and into his word, We will increase his fruit in our lives and in his world. You see the relationship between our roots going into God, going into the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, going into his word. If you're not reading your Bible every day, you're going to have a really hard time thriving in this world. We need to be reading his word. We need to be seeking to live faithfully, to follow his ways rather than our own ways or the world's ways. And as we do that, as we deepen our roots into God, then we can bear fruit for him in his 
world. I know the slide says bear, increase our fruit in our lives, but I realized this morning on my last run through, I was like, no, 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 it's his fruit. It's this fruit of the spirit. The Holy Spirit comes alive within us and bears fruit through our lives that reproduces itself in, in the kingdom of God. And, and it's his fruit at work in us as we sink our roots deeper into him. So today we're going to be talking about thriving spiritually, and the order really matters. Uh, We're starting with spiritually and thriving spiritually because you can't truly thrive in the other ways until you're thriving spiritually in your relationship with God. And, And that sort of sets all the others in motion. And I want you to think through this, not just individually. It's kind of geared that way and, and geared towards the individual application that you would thrive in these areas. But there's also a corporate application. And this idea that as more and more of us choose to deepen our roots in God and in his word and in his ways, and we do that collectively, then corporately we will be thriving spiritually. That Linwood as a church and that the capital C church around the world would be thriving spiritually and emotionally and relationally and physically and financially. And so all of this is interconnected, and as we sort of multiply it uh, when we get in a group in the community of faith and apply these things. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Verses 44 through 46, a little shorter passage of Scripture today. Um, That's on page 1519, if you have one of those dark blue uh, Bibles in the seat in front of you. Or I always encourage you to bring your own Bible and read it in that version. Uh, I want to give a nod to Tim Keller. Some of what I'm going to share, uh, I picked up in a sermon that I listened to him preach uh, here in the last couple of months. And I said, man, this is exactly what God's been laying on my heart uh, for for this Made to Thrive series and this idea of thriving spiritually. So we're going to look at Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. And here's what it says. This may be familiar to many of you. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So, how many of you have heard that one before? How many of you have heard a sermon on that one before? Quite a few, yeah. Uh, this, is a, this is a parable that I've heard many times. And uh, one of the things I really like about it is it zeroes in on a really important principle the kingdom of God. And this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of heaven. In fact, all of Matthew 13 are parables. They're called kingdom parables where they're explaining what things are like in the kingdom, the order of authority of heaven. What are things like? And this gives us some insight into that. And it's important to understand that these parables are not necessarily true stories uh, or not necessarily case studies in business ethics, okay? He's not saying go out and if you find something really valuable, you know, kind of hide that away and go, you know, don't get caught up in that. Get caught up in the main point of the parable, which is that both of these men that are mentioned in these parables had an epiphany. They had an awareness. They saw something of great value and beauty that others had missed, We're told the first one, it was a treasure hidden in a field. So it was something that had been concealed. The second one is a merchant. So he's trading in pearls, and he finds a pearl of great value. It's almost like the value hadn't been recognized by the other people. Like, like 
found this pearl, and oh, this is, this is the pearl. This is the pearl of great value that I must have. And so it's kind of the same with the gospel. Some people, when you're sharing, you're evangelizing, or they come to church and they hear it for the first time, it's like it's been hidden from them all their lives. It's like they didn't know that it was even there or that it even existed. Others, they haven't recognized the value of it yet. And maybe when you share your story of how Jesus transformed your life and how the gospel became real in your heart will be the time when they recognize the value of the gospel, the value of what Christ has done for us, that it will be something that they had heard before but had not recognized the value. I think it's important to see that that interesting uh, insight to it. But there's also this really important principle that they realize there is no halfway of getting it. There's no halfway way of getting it. It's going to be an all-in proposition. It's all or nothing. And both sell out completely to obtain the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. I find it interesting to say they, they sell everything they own. They didn't go to the pawn shop, okay? They didn't, they didn't play a little gambit and say, okay, well, I'll, I'll hawk all my stuff, go get the treasure hidden in the field, now I'll make a tidy profit on that, sell the treasure hidden in the field, and go buy all my stuff back. It doesn't say that. They, they relinquished ownership of everything that they had in order to obtain this one thing. And that is the point of the parable. Because this willingness to exchange everything we have in order to obtain the kingdom of God, in order to obtain life and joy and peace and righteousness in the kingdom of God, is the means to receiving the kingdom of God. It's that willingness to exchange it. It's not how we merit it. It's not how we earn it. But it is how we receive it. It's the, I'm not taking anything in with me. I'm leaving all that behind in order to follow Jesus Christ. It's the willingness to relinquish control. That is how we receive the kingdom of God. And that's why Christianity is a whole new dimension. It's not a change in degree. It's a change in essence. We become new creation. There is something new happening in us and happening through us. It is a completely new dimension. And that's why our bottom line today comes right out of this parable. It's this idea that Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. Jesus is either Lord of all, or he isn't at Lord at all. And this is a tough teaching for some of us. We want to say, no, 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 wait, wait. You know, he, he's my Lord, but of this, not of this. No, he's Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. And the reason that you can say that with absolute clarity and conviction is the word Lord and what the word Lord really means. It doesn't just mean a temporary master. It doesn't mean an employer. It doesn't mean anything other than complete ownership. The Greek word is kurios. It's this word kurios. And it means master, it means owner. But the real heart of the definition is the one who has complete ownership rights over another. Not renting, not partial, but complete ownership rights over another. That's why Paul opened all of his letters saying he was a slave of Christ, that he was a bond servant of Christ, one who had been purchased with a price. And he sets the example for us. Much as these two men in the parable did not bring anything with them into the kingdom of God, they sold it all. They exchanged everything they had. They gave up ownership of all that they had and control over all that they had in order to obtain this 
present, this gift, this invitation into the kingdom of God. I remember the first time I heard those words, I was sitting at Highland Park Community Church, and John Spear, my pastor at the time, said that, and I realized in that moment, Jesus Christ was not Lord of all in my life. He was certainly Lord of Sunday morning, and he was Lord of the convenient spaces throughout the rest of the week for him to be Lord, but he was not Lord of all. And I had to reconcile that that meant he wasn't Lord at all, and I had to make some changes And I had to recognize that, like most people, I really wanted a Savior. Don't you? Like, if you're drowning, you really want a Savior. And most of the people in this room and most of the people out in that world, they really want a Savior. But very few people are looking for a Lord. Very few people are looking to exchange everything that they have in order to obtain the kingdom of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's really interesting to do a little word study in the New Testament, and you will find that the word Savior, referring to Jesus, occurs 24 times. 18 of the books don't even mention it. Two of the Gospels don't even mention him as Savior. But you look up the word Lord, and you will find that it is attached to Jesus over 640 times. And he's referred to as Christ, or Messiah, or the Anointed One of God, over 530 times. And so, Scripture is emphasizing the Lordship of Christ unequivocally. Every book in the New Testament identifies Jesus Christ as Lord. Every book in the New Testament identifies him as the Anointed One of God. And so, Scripture is clearly emphasizing his Lordship. And the New Testament believers and the writers of the New Testament are clearly emphasizing the issue of Lordship, of being the owner, the master, the one calling the shots in our lives. In fact, Luke uh, 2.11, I put this on the screen for you. Luke 2.11 has all three and clearly emphasizes the issue of lordship. It says, as the angel proclaims, I clipped the paper. 2.11, and you today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He is the Lord. And so the question is, have you received a Savior but not a Lord? Have you welcomed a Savior into your life but not welcomed a Lord into your life? It's the same person. Scripture would say we can't have one without the other. And there's great danger in approaching the Bible selectively and saying, well, I can accept all of Jesus' moral teachings and, and things generally go better when we do things his way. But this whole idea of him being the Lord of all, this whole idea of him being the son of God, of a, an actual resurrection, there are people in this world who kind of carve out the, the teachings of Jesus, the, the moral teachings of Jesus, and then try to kind of sideline the claims of being God's son, the claims of a physical resurrection, the claims uh, that he made about himself. And there's real danger in this. You might even say there's a lunacy in approaching Scripture selectively because how do you decide? On what basis do you decide which parts of Scripture are legitimate and applicable to your life and which parts are not? Is it 50-50? Is it 80-20? Is it 99-1? and 1? Is it 99.999? But there's that 1% or that one-tenth or that one-hundredth of a percent. Because the reality is either the Bible has evaluative authority over my life 
or I put myself in the place of having evaluative authority over the Bible. And I'm not willing to do that. I, I don't trust myself enough. I do trust God and his word and his ways enough in order to submit my life to the evaluative authority of the Bible rather than saying, well, I can handle all of this, but I can't quite get that part. And that's why I said it to be a Christian is to have God's power exercised over your entire life, to have it take over. It's a change in essence. The essential nature of who you are has changed. There is a new creation taking place. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. It is a change of essence. We use the language to be born again. It comes from John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And if you think about birth, birth is traumatic. Birth is dramatic. It's, it's, it's kind of messy if you've ever been involved in a birth. There is... There is life coming into being and, and birth. To be born again is painful. There's a letting go. There's a selling off of all that might encumber. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that we cast aside everything and the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can pursue Christ wholeheartedly and unreservedly and we don't let anything hold us back from that. You see, Jesus is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. And so Christianity requires complete surrender, but it also requires unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. They didn't, they didn't go and kind of hedge their bets on the value of the treasure hidden in the field or, or the pearl of grace price. They were all in. It was complete, and it was unconditional, and it was irreversible what they chose to do and to pursue the the pearl or the treasure. Christianity requires the same complete and unconditional surrender. And the only way is to sell it all. The only way is to say that there is nothing I value more than Christ. No amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of possessions, no amount of status. That we set it all aside in order to pursue Christ and Him Alone, And if we say, I will obey if this happens, or I will obey as long as this happens, then whatever you fill in the blank there, that's the God. That's the thing that you are pursuing more than Christ. And what he gives us in exchange is unspeakable joy, unspeakable splendor for eternity, starting now. We don't have to wait. We think that all this stuff starts when we die. We're told we're not going to die. If, we, if Christ is in us, you know, it says you, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Your everlasting life doesn't start after you die. It starts when you accept Christ. It starts when you exchange everything you have for everything that he offers. And it truly is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Any of you know that old hymn, joy unspeakable and full of glory? Oh, the half has never yet been told. That We can't even imagine it. Scripture says that no eye has seen and no ear has heard what is available to us for eternity, starting now. And we're told that the first person who found the treasure hidden in the field, he went away with joy and sold everything. The joy didn't come later. The joy came in the, the apprehension. The, the joy came in, in apprehending what it was that God had revealed to them, that this treasure, this, this kingdom of heaven, essentially, is what we're talking about. And so if you want to thrive spiritually... If you want to thrive spiritually, go all in. 
Go all in. Give up all your small ambitions and make Jesus Christ and his way and his word and his life your one ambition. You see, Tim Keller points out that, that our ambitions and our admissions are too small. We want to admit a little bit and get a little bit. You know, I'll admit this and I'll get some forgiveness for that. And I'll get some, you know, some peace in exchange for that. And I'll get a clear conscience. And then maybe I'll admit a little bit more. And I'll get a little bit more. And we have these really small ambitions. Like, I want to have a certain car or a certain truck or a certain vacation or a certain size house. And these are all really small ambitions compared to the matchless pursuit of Christ. And serving Christ for a lifetime and bringing others into his kingdom. And when we make Christ our only ambition and we sell out completely for him, we experience the joy, we experience the grace, we experience the peace that comes with that. You see, the gospel is much more magnificent and much more wonderful than most of us realize. The exchange of eternities that takes place when we receive the gospel, when we leave everything behind and wholeheartedly pursue and embrace the truths of God, it's more wonderful and more magnificent than we can even imagine. And in eternity, the exchange that has taken place, an eternity separated from God with weeping and gnashing of teeth, with pain, with fire, with all that, that is bad and all that is horrible and unimaginable. We exchange all of that for an eternity in his presence, an eternity of joy, an eternity in his light. We don't realize how wonderful and how magnificent the gospel truly is. C.S. Lewis explains perhaps why. And maybe you've heard this quote before. He says, Imagine yourself as living as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Any of you ever had that experience? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college, cottage, but he is building a palace he intends to come and live in it himself. See, a lot of us want to let Jesus into the front door and keep him in the, the main living room, you know, the one that we keep clean, the one that we dust, the one that everything has a place and there's a place for everything. And then maybe after a while when we've gotten comfortable with him, yeah, you can come around into the kitchen, you can, you can stay for dinner, you can, you know, it's not quite as clean, but... But he wants to take the master key. He wants to go in and clean out the old closets. He wants to go down into the basement where it doesn't smell quite so good. And he wants to bring his light and his life into every aspect of our lives. He doesn't want anything withheld because he knows that anything that we withhold from him will not benefit from his presence in our lives. And so I want to encourage you to make Jesus Lord of all if you haven't done that before. That today might be the day 
that June 30th, 2019 might be the day that you make Jesus Lord of all, even if you thought you did that once before. That today could be the day that you come back to him if you did it and kind of got away. And now you can come back to him. And maybe, maybe you need to repent of something today. Maybe you need to repent of not being completely captivated and ravished by Jesus, being captivated by his love, that there's nothing else that you want to pursue, that there's nothing else that even holds a candle to pursuing him, to pursuing Christ. Maybe we need to repent of something today. Maybe we need to repent of a hard heart. You see, repenting of a hard heart softens your heart. Asking God to change your hard heart softens your heart. And maybe we need to repent of holding anything back from Jesus, holding anything back from pursuing him, holding anything back from his lordship in our lives. Might be a funny way to end a a sermon, but I saw an ad for the Lion King. It's coming back out. It's been like 20 years. I remember watching it. I remember just being in awe of this movie. And it's coming back out as a live action But I realized in that story, there is a rightful king. And that rightful king is withheld from the throne. And the whole story is about that king getting back to the throne. And this is a story that pops up over and over in literature. It's in Camelot. You see it it in Robin Hood. You see it popping up. There's a rightful king, and he's not on the throne. And this is the reality of our world today. There is a rightful king. And he is on the throne. But not everybody is in the kingdom. Does that make sense? And there is a rightful king for your life. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if he's not on the throne, you will not thrive. It might look like you're thriving for a while, but for eternity, you will not thrive. But when the rightful king is on the throne, and it's not me, when the rightful king is on the throne of my life, I can thrive in his grace. I can thrive in his joy. I can thrive in his peace. And the fruit of the Spirit can begin to work itself out in me and through me. And the kingdom can expand in me and through me. And so this has individual application and this has corporate application. How will you respond today? Is Jesus Lord of all? Because if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Seven people have chosen to step forward in baptism today. Seven people have chosen to to give their lives to Christ at some point prior to this, and today they're making it public. Today they are choosing to step out. And I was reminded as I was finishing, practicing this sermon of Peter's words in Acts chapter 2. Maybe you remember this one. He spoke on the day of Pentecost. It was the first sermon of the early church. And he said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, all For whom the Lord God will call. 
And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If Jesus isn't Lord of all, and you want him to be, he can be. And today can be the day. And today can be the day that you repent and be baptized. Don't leave this place unchanged. Don't leave this moment unchanged. Don't fail to respond to the conviction if the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Even when it's challenging, even when it's convicting, even when it gets under our skin a little bit maybe. We thank you that this grace is free and freely offered to us, though it will cost us everything. I pray that your spirit will move on hearts right now and that we will respond in faith to the word and to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for Gard and Melissa, for Allie and Chris, for Loey and Daryl and Chris and for their public profession of faith. And I thank you and praise you for being the rightful king, for loving us when we couldn't even love ourselves. Help us to respond to your love, O Lord. Help us to live for you and to hold nothing back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.